The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Here we are again. Uh, live streaming the service. I want to remind you that uh, after the service is concluded, this service will be shareable and watchable uh, online for the remainder of the week until we uh, live stream again next Sunday. Uh, But we uh, have decided that we were going to stay in our ongoing series in the book of Galatians uh, for this odd season that we're in. And uh, as Lee Eric Fesco, who did the message last week, mentioned, uh, there actually couldn't have been a more perfect uh, scripture to cover last week when uh, it talked about, and Lee Eric taught about, uh, bearing each other's burdens. It seemed incredibly timely. And then Lee Eric offered in his sermon some helpful advice about checking on the vulnerable in our neighborhoods and and in uh, our social circles and and in our city, checking on the elderly, checking on people who have health conditions that might uh, put them in a vulnerable position during this time, uh, going out and grocery shopping for people, getting people's medicines uh, for them as needed, supporting health workers, uh, supporting people who are isolated during a season like this socially and otherwise. Uh, supporting college students if you're in Nashville and, and uh, you know, where there are many college students who have been displaced from their dorms and don't have a place to live, uh, and so on. What Lee Eric began to do for us last week, I get to continue doing uh, this week, and that is to point out uh, a truth from uh, both the Bible and from history, and it's this, in times of crisis, as many in the world retreat from need, retreat from the mess out of self-preservation, followers of Jesus, Christians have always had this impulse uh, given to us by Christ himself who meets us in our need. We've always had this impulse throughout history to move toward the need and to move toward the mess uh, in self-sacrifice. Now, here's the thing about the message this week. I struggled with whether or not to move forward with this one. Uh, You know, the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, when he writes to a young pastor named Timothy, he talks about preaching the word. And this is a a pastor's job, is to preach the word of God. And Paul says, you need to preach the scriptures in season 
and out of season. And, and like I mentioned last week, uh, the text that Lee Eric Fesco covered uh, was very much in season about bearing each other's burdens, about carrying each other. And I look at this text on the surface through the English translation and it just seems like a continuation. And then I dove into the commentaries and discovered that this is a text about being generous with our resources. Financial generosity is, is what the Greek text points to uh, here. And uh, I've got to confess, I tried to find a commentary that would broaden the application so I wouldn't have to go there in a climate where the Dow Jones is doing a nosedive, where uh, there's all this talk about potential unemployment and financial stress and so on. And like I said, I even thought about changing the sermon, but then I thought, well, if God's timing was perfect last week, then, then certainly God's timing has something to say to us this week. And, uh, and then I started thinking and praying and wrestling further through this particular text, and I realized that maybe this also is an in-season message from the Word of God for us. Uh, specifically, this is an opportunity not only for me to uh, remind those who identify as followers of Christ, but also to try to uh, explain and share with those who don't identify as followers of Christ, who, who are looking in from different places, why Christians have always, uh, in times of crisis, in times of, of, of national panic, have become compellingly generous, or as one historian said, promiscuous with their resources in a time where resources are becoming increasingly scarce. Nicholas Kristof, uh, who's a journalist for the New York Times, writes about this. He writes uh, about... Uh, followers of Christ in particular, and, and Christoph, if, if you don't know who he is and you're not familiar with his work, he covers poverty, he covers disaster, he covers uh, pandemics whenever and wherever they happen around the world. And one of the things that he's observed in the last few years in his columns is how followers of Jesus Christ tend to be the ones who show up first who leave last and who empty their pockets uh, in support of their neighbors, including people who do not believe as they do. And so, so what I want to do is, is, is try to give a compelling picture of why Christians are this way, why we've always been this way throughout history. And Paul uses the language of sowing, which is an agricultural uh, word. Uh, and he talks about sowing the flesh, which means, you know, acting in self-interest, responding to the stress of the world in self-interest. And then he talks about sowing to the spirit, which, which means acting in the interests of God and neighbor. And so, so I'm going to break down this message into the two categories that I think that Paul uh, breaks it down into when he talks about uh, living generous lives and having a culture of generosity in our hearts and a culture of generosity in, in our believing communities uh, as we look toward one another's needs and as we look to the, the needs of the world uh, around us and especially our neighbors. And so 
so here we go. How's this for you know, something that sounds like a point made in self-interest? Paul talks about starting with supporting church workers. How about that? Don't tune me out just yet. Uh, verse six, he says, let the one who is taught share all good things. And again, Paul's language here in the original language has to do specifically with financial support. Share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, um, a not so funny and yet also slightly humorous anecdote. Uh, I was in conversation with an area pastor, another local pastor here in Nashville just a few weeks ago, and he said he ran into one of his church members at a pretty nice restaurant. Nashville is filled with nice restaurants, you know, foodie town that it is. And, and so he ran into one of the church members and the church member uh, said to him, hmm, interesting running into you here. I guess that we're paying you more than we should. And you know, my first thought when I heard this pastor relay this anecdote to me and this tongue-in-cheek comment uh, from the church member about paying him too much is that I can't relate to this. I can't relate to this because uh, the church I'm part of is a church that cares extraordinarily well for its leaders, for its church workers, for its pastors and everybody else who contributes vocationally uh, to the life and mission of, of our church. Um, here's the thing about us church workers. We're not in this for the money. Uh, many people who work in the church have skill sets that would enable them to, to make a greater income in other industries and such. So we are not in it for the money. The one thing that, that con convinced me and persuaded me that, 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 that vocational ministry was the thing for me was a, was a statement that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist uh, minister from London in the 19th century, uh, he said this to his theological students who were training for the pastoral ministry. He said, if you can imagine yourself doing anything vocationally other than uh, the gospel ministry, then by all means do that. And as I considered the question, I thought, you know, I think I'm one of those people that God has wired in such a way that I can't imagine doing anything else uh, other than what I get to do. Uh, it's an incredible privilege. I'm on the one hand very well taken care of. On the other hand, I don't do it for that reason because of a couple of things. Why would Spurgeon say, imagine, uh, you know, can you imagine doing anything else than by all means do that? Why would he say that? Well, Paul Tripp, who's a more contemporary pastor and, and writer, uh, wrote this book called Dangerous Calling. And, and his whole thesis in this book is that that being a church worker is dangerous. One of the things that makes it dangerous is that we're dealing with people's sin all the time. The most dysfunctional, the most uh, difficult aspects of people's lives come onto our radar in a dispro disproportionate way, but, but worse than that, we're dealing with our own sins all of the time. You know, Paul Tripp starts this book uh, in the introduction 
uh, talking about a season of, of uh, what he described as a, as a thriving church ministry uh, when there wasn't a thriving uh, marriage at home. He said he was going through a season where, where he was, was angry all the time and, 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 and his anger was constantly coming out sideways at home. And uh, one day his wife called him on it and confronted him on, on his anger. And he says to her, don't you realize that 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. And to this, his wife responded, well, I guess I am in the 5%. Ask the people who live closest to us. Ask the people who work most closely to us. It's not that we're just called into the difficulties of the lives of other people and the, the most high maintenance aspects of other people's lives, we have to deal with our own high maintenance realities, with our own struggles, because the shepherds are also sheep. So it's not only people's sins, but we're also called to, to tend to people's sorrows, including our own. You know, I mentioned Charles Haddon Spurgeon a moment ago. One of the things about Spurgeon that's widely known is that he was a man who dealt regularly with anxiety and depression. I could say the same thing. You know, some of us were called into work that is above anyone's pay grade, including our own. We're over our heads a lot of the time. I'm over my head right now preaching to an empty room in hopes of of meeting, of, 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 of meeting the needs and the spiritual hunger and thirst of, of who knows who out there on your computers. I'm way over my head in this. I'm way over my head when I'm called in to a cancer diagnosis or to a mental illness that a family is dealing with or a family or an individual that's dealing with financial trouble or a marriage that's falling apart or a funeral that needs to be officiated or a global pandemic. We don't know what we're doing half the time. And so why on earth would we say, I can't imagine myself doing anything else? One of the reasons is, and this was the reason Paul would give to the church at Galatia, we love you. We love people that Jesus loves, which is pretty much all people. But we especially are called and drawn toward those that Christ has rescued, those that Christ is ministering to, we want to be in on that. We want to be part of that. There's something in us that, that, that says, along with the Apostle Paul, where he said elsewhere, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me if I don't get to do this. Some of you feel that way about your own vocations and about your own callings. And, and our calling is by no means any more superior than anyone else's. But, but, but like many of you, the thing that we have been given to do is a thing we can't imagine not doing. It's become so much a part of us that it feels like a third arm uh, the ministry does or, or, or a third leg. Church is family to us. It's not just a job. Most of the time, it doesn't feel like a job. It's family to us. You hear this in Paul's language. He, he calls them in the first verse, brothers. Now, that's a, that's a gender-inclusive terminology in the same way that, uh, you know, when he calls Christians the bride of Christ, the, the, the men and the boys are included 
there as well. These are metaphors to, to communicate God's affection for his people. And here in verse 10, he says that the church is the household of faith. That, that's, that's family language. Household is family language. You know, Matthew chapter 12, there's this famous account where, where people come to Jesus and, and they say to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're looking for you. Your mom and your brothers. And, and Jesus answers, who is my mother? And who is my brother? Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. That's how we feel about the communities and the church that we get to serve. You are our mother. You are our brothers. You are our sisters. You are our fathers. You are our children. We love you. This brings me back to the primary point of Paul's text, and that is financial generosity. That's one of the many, 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 many ways that we also experience from you that you love us. Imagine getting to go home to your wife and your kids. This is my life. This is what I get to do. Imagine getting to go to your own home, sit around the dinner table, and to say to your family, remember this, this food, this roof, that furnace, that mower, this car, that shirt, this water, your education, our health care, this dog, all brought to you by the generosity of the people of God. All of it. Our own ability even, sweetheart, our own ability even, kids, to continue to be generous during an unstable, uncertain time like now ourselves. Even our own ability to be generous is brought to us by the generosity of the people of God. That's a pretty wonderful thought. We love you and we know you love us. That's why we do what we do. Well, Paul talks about supporting church workers, but he also talks about the importance of supporting church Work. There's a vow, actually, that uh, when people join our church, Christ Presbyterian, that all new members make. And it goes this way. I promise to support the church, specifically this church, to the best of my ability in its worship and its work. It's worship and its work. It's a shared participation. You know, church workers... We're not here to do all the work. We're here, as the Bible says, to equip and help everyone else to do the work of the ministry. It's a shared participation. And what do we participate in? We participate in two things. The church as a home and also the church as a mission. So first, it's a home for all believers. It's a place where we care for one another. There's all this one another language language, one anothering language, love one another, forgive one another, support one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, build one another up. The New Testament, especially the writings of, of this, this man, the Apostle Paul, filled with one anothering statements. The church is a home for all believers. It's not just a family for church workers, by the way, it's a family 
for everyone who's part of the church. Remember, Paul is writing here about the household of faith. This is an ancient idiom meaning the local church. The local church is not a place where you go. It's a family that you are part of and and for that reason you gather with them. That's, That's why online church, while wonderfully helpful and convenient right now, is wonky and incomplete. We can't we can't hand you physically the, the communion elements. We can't hug you and, 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 and look you directly in the eye. We can't do that. You know, we're disembodied right now from one another and that's not ideal because we are a family. I mean, can you imagine having dinner uh, you know, with your family and everybody's in the same house but in different rooms and everybody takes their their meal to to a different place and you just communicate with each other on you know FaceTime or Zoom there's something lost through a screen and yet we're we're grateful for what technology can do for us when we need it but when the bible talks about a household it's talking about a family family that lives together, that dies together, that struggles and suffers together, that triumphs and rejoices together. A family, a church is not just a place where Christians go, it's a family that they're a part of. Where God is our father, where Jesus is both our elder brother and the bridegroom, where we are brothers and sisters to each other. You know, Jesus said it this way, truly I tell you, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. And so one of the things Jesus is saying here is that the local church isn't just your family. It is now your primary family because it's your forever family. The moment Scott Sauls became a believer in Jesus Christ. Scott Saul's identity was no longer in his career situation, his gender, his marital status, his economic status, his social rank, his accomplishments, his ethnicity, his political leanings. The moment Scott Sauls became a believer in Jesus Christ, his core identity no longer was that he is a Sauls. His core identity now is that he is a beloved child of God and a beloved member and participant in the body of Christ, the church. In a time of crisis, what does this family do? This family that scripture calls the church. It's a family that sows in love, according to the writing of Paul here. We sow in love. In other words, if if we sow to the flesh, we're we're acting in self-interest and out of self-protection. If we're sowing to the spirit, we're acting in the interests of God and the interests of others as well. You know, before we were uh, part of this church in Nashville, uh, Patty and the girls and I, uh, I served on uh, the staff at a church 
in New York City. I was a pastor there. And we were there the last time that um, the Dow Jones did a no, nosedive in the, in, in the way that it's doing now. Uh, and, and unemployment went up and, and all kinds of um, scared feelings uh, were, were spreading all over the place because of how unstable we were once again reminded that we are and how out of control we were reminded that we are all of the time. It was when the stock market crashed in, in 2008 and, and 2009 and the last recession began. And I can remember, I can remember the day that Lehman Brothers, one of the, the, the dominant financial institutions on Wall Street, uh, went poof. Uh, in one day, it was gone uh, because of the crash. And one of the, one, of the, um, one of the top leaders at Lehman Brothers was also part of our church. And he, he reached out to me, asked if we could meet. He came to my office that next day. He said, he said you know, yesterday morning, I woke up a multimillionaire and today I woke up broke. What am I supposed to do? And I said, you've already done the first thing you're supposed to do, and that is to reach out to your local church, because we are your family. During that season, and remember, this is New York City, where everybody's livelihood is somehow dependent or connected to what's happening in the financial institutions. It was during this season when, when everybody's personal economic situation felt most threatened that this church that we were a part of uh, experienced more generosity, especially to the care efforts than they had ever experienced in the history of that church. I'll give you another one closer to home if you're, if, if you're listening and you're part of the Christ Presbyterian uh, congregation. Uh, you may remember this story about your own church. Uh, several years ago, there was a gathering of, of Christ Prez's musicians. There are a lot of musicians in our church. And there was a particular gathering one night, and, and one, of the, uh, one of the couples that was part of this musicians group shared with, with kind of the person who convened the meeting uh, that they are in very, very difficult financial uh, times, that they were really struggling financially. And so the, the convener or the leader of the group said to everybody, you know, confidentially, uh, and I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there, there is a couple among us that is struggling greatly uh, with their finances, with meeting the bills and so on. And so we're going to take up a collection. And they took up a collection. And as they were, you know, counting and putting everything together and tallying the amount so, so that a check could be written to the couple, the people who were tallying the, the gifts that were given to benefit this couple realized that the largest check was written by that couple. They didn't know that the, that the, that the plea was, was to take a collection for them. They thought, well, maybe there's somebody who's even worse off than we are. And so they wrote the biggest check in the group, not realizing that it was to their own need. How does this happen? It, you know, it reminded me of, of how Paul talks about the Macedonians who from their great poverty in a time of crisis, in a time of national crisis, gave and gave and gave. Or the, or, or the poor widow who, who had close to nothing and she shows up at the temple and she gives the little bit that she has to the Lord. And Jesus says, look, what, what she has given 
is so much greater than, than, than what the greatest millionaire has given because she gave out of a place of love and out of a place of deep sacrifice. It can happen in intangible, non-monetary ways as well. I'll never forget one woman in her mid-30s um, wanted to be married, just never had an opportunity, and she was going through a specific or, or, or a particular season of loneliness and sadness. And she was uh, having dinner at uh, a, a family's house uh, that was also part of the same church. And she was sharing with them, because they're close friends, she was sharing with them uh, just her heartache and, 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 and her not wanting to live alone and, and, and her struggling with the thought that this could, this could be a lot longer than I'd ever hoped it would be, you know, this living alone thing. And the couple said to her, we just want you to know that we've talked with each other and we want you to know that there is always room for you with us. And if you want it, there's a room in our home for you for the rest of your life. That's what the church does because the church is family. The church is also a mission to our neighbors. It's not just a home for all believers. It's also a mission to our neighbors, especially in times of crisis. You know, Paul writes in verse nine, let us not grow weary. Why would he do that? Because pouring your life out for others living generously and, and, and cultivating and nurturing and responding to the culture of generosity in your heart and in your worshiping community and responding to that and participating in it, it comes with weariness and fatigue and, and because it, it's, it's self-donation. But he says, let us not grow weary. Let us do good to everyone and especially, but, but, but by all means, not exclusively, especially to those who are of the household of faith, but, but to do good to everyone, especially in a time of crisis. You've heard the phrase, charity starts at home. Now, oftentimes, charity starts at home can be a euphemism that is used as an excuse to end charity at home. You know, interestingly, the word charity comes from the biblical word, the Greek word charis, which we have in our translations, grace, grace. Grace is you know, God's riches at Christ's expense, his, his free, unmerited generosity toward us. Charity starts at home. I, th I think there's a case for this, you know, especially the household of faith. You know, let us do good. Let us be generous, especially the household of faith. But let's make sure that our charity doesn't end at home. Because there's no place in the Christian vocabulary for a charity that ends at home. We're just getting started when we take care of our own. You know, in the Bible and throughout history, the family of God, again, runs toward the mess, runs toward the struggle, runs toward the scarcity, while, while many in the world are retreating from those things. Because self-donation is a core value of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. You know, Frederick Beekner wrote that the place that God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And for those of us who have 
come alive to the love of God because of what Christ has done for us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead and all the promises that come to us from that for the future, our deep gladness, the more we understand and internalize these realities about what Christ has done for us, sounds a lot like John 3.16. God so loved that he gave. Christians too, having been loved in this way, so love to the end that we want to give. Our deep gladness in many ways is satisfied by the opportunity to please Christ by giving ourselves away, first toward him and then toward our neighbors. A lesson from church history, actually several of them that I'll, that I'll wrap this up with. First of all, the plagues in Rome. Pandemics, epidemics in early Rome. This was right after the New Testament era. Uh, actually, you know, maybe a couple centuries after the New Testament era, era from 249 to 262 AD in Rome. There was a lethal pandemic that caused approximately 5,000 deaths per day in Rome. And there were two responses. You know, the Bishop Dionysius described them in this way. The citizens of Rome, Dionysius said, deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death. But the Christians, Dionysius said, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need. They were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Now, about the same era, that was the perspective of a minister. The perspective of an emperor was this, Emperor Julian, who was in many ways as Hitler was to the Jews, except toward Christians. He, he wanted to exterminate Christianity from Rome because of Christianity's growing influence. But Julian wrote in a letter that Christians keep growing. Their number keeps growing, and he said this, Christian growth is caused by their moral character and their benevolence towards strangers and their care for the graves of the dead. And then in a second letter, Julian wrote, Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Somehow, the, the, the early Christians loved Rome better than Rome loved Rome, even to the point where the Roman emperor, who was trying to exterminate Christianity, had to own that fact. 14th century, Martin Luther, you know, when the Black Death was sweeping across Europe, stayed. He and his wife, Katie, stayed to tend to the sick because of what Matthew 25 says, where Jesus says, when I was sick, you visited me. And what Jesus is doing there is he's referring to the least of these. He's referring to caring for the vulnerable. That's what my people do, Jesus says. And then in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon again, there was a cholera plague in London 
And Spurgeon observed, as he ministered into that climate, that spiritual hunger grew and grew and grew and grew during a time where everybody felt vulnerable and everybody was reminded how out of control we actually are of the world around us. In our time, I think we got the good word for this last week. Again, when, when Lee Eric Fesco said, we are to love responsibly uh, in the time that we're in right now. What does that mean? It means first protect yourself as, as much as you can from becoming a carrier of the coronavirus. That's one of the ways that you can carry your neighbor is to protect yourself from getting the virus and being contagious. And then figure out ways together to carry each other. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to say as a church to our neighbors who don't believe as we do. This isn't just church workers around their dinner tables. What if our city started to recognize all of this care? Let's just think about some of the things that Christ Prez has had the privilege of being involved with because of your generosity. 2010, serving flood victims, providing refuge for flood victims in Nashville. 2015, 16, and 17, providing resources for uh, the most vulnerable people affected by the global refugee crisis, including what it did uh, here locally to refugees in Nashville. 2019, contributing to victims of the Ebola outbreak. 2020, right now, we're still in the process of of figuring out and, and, and while also contributing to tornado relief and the economic scarcity that has ensued because of it. We've been able to help churches that don't have our resources pay their entire insurance deductibles so their, so their buildings can be repaired uh, after the tornado damage and they can open up for worship again. We've spent thousands of dollars as a church on grocery cards and, and, and we're partnering and, and, and deploying uh, people to food banks to serve our most vulnerable neighbors. We get to do this. This is something we have to do. These are things that we get to do, that we get to participate in. Why do we, again, why? Because of what Jesus taught in his good Samaritan parable. It is an unbelievable, indescribable, unspeakable privilege to bear burdens, not only for one another, but also for our neighbors because of what has already been done for us. Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, the scripture tells us, became poor, born in a manger, left you know, on a cross, died on a cross, on a trash heap. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty, we might become rich. If you're a Christian, what does this mean during a time like this? For the love of God and for the love of your neighbor, stay as generous as you can. Stay as generous as you can. And then for those who don't identify as Christians, what might it look like for you to consider this movement and whether or not there's belonging for you in it? We certainly hope so. We hope you will consider not only the what, but the why 
behind why Christians have been so involved in times of crisis and have moved toward the brokenness instead of retreating from it. Did you know that it was Christians who invented healthcare? It was followers of Christ who invented healthcare because of times such as the one that we're in. If you don't identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to show my hand. I hope you will. I hope you will consider these things and I hope your first step in that direction, and I'm gonna surprise you with this perhaps, is not to think about what you can give economically, but rather what can you receive from a church that's trying to love Rome even better than Rome can love Rome. We invite you, especially if you're in our hometown of Nashville, to reach out. We'd love to meet you, and we'd love for you to ask for help from the local church, because that's part of what we do, and it's part of what we love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of the generosity of the people of God and for the ways that that lifts up those of us who get to be church workers, for the way that it strengthens the church, especially for the sake of the most vulnerable among us, and for the way that it can contribute to the world in ways that no other movement has ever been able to. Because the love that we want to offer to the world is a love that we get from you, Jesus. It's a love born not from coercion, not from taxation, not from have to, not from force, but from desire to love our neighbors in the same way that we've been loved by you, Jesus, the consummate neighbor in whose name we pray, amen.